The reading today is from Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. You can find it in your bulletins, um, in your own Bibles, or on your phones. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ashley. <clears throat> well, as I, uh, as I said at the beginning, you know, things are just going to get worse for us this morning because we're talking about uh, money today. And there's two things that you don't talk about in polite, com polite company. You don't talk about sex and you don't talk about money. Church is supposed to be a place of relatively polite company, I would think. And uh, it's awkward for preachers to preach about sex and money. And it's awkward for parishioners to listen to their preachers preach about uh, sex and money. Uh, fortunately, we did like three weeks on sex. We're only doing one on money. So that's good, right? Um, more than he talks about sex. I, there's no way I could listen to God's word this morning on the subject of money, because as we said, uh, today is Stewardship Sunday, it's Generosity Sunday, that's another way of, of talking about it. This is the Sunday where uh, we are asking uh, GVC folks to think about their giving and their giving in relationship to the church, as was explained before uh, the service. And, and as was said then, and let me just emphasize now, we're doing it now rather than at the end of the year. Oftentimes in churches, you will get an end-of-the-year appeal, right? It's not uncommon where somebody stands up in November and says, hey, look, you know, we're, we're looking at the books, and we're not quite where we need to be. Everybody, can you cough it up a little more? And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, who knows? Maybe we're going to have to do that at some point, too. But the reason we're doing it now rather than then is because, as Gerald mentioned at the beginning of the service, is because... What God wants from us are His God, and in fact, the people of God throughout the entire biblical story, uh, Old and New Testament, were largely farmers, right? And the way that, that things went in farming was, you know, you first you plant your seed, then you grow your crops, and then you receive your harvest at the end. And at harvest time uh, was the time, uh, once all the harvest was in, that was the time when you finally determined you knew kind of... But those of you who aren't farmers might know what that's like because, you know, you look at the beginning of the year, this year, and there are investments that you hope to make. You don't know what the return on those investments are going to be. Uh, maybe you are in a salaried position and you get bonuses at the end of the year. Well, you don't know what your bonus is going to be. Maybe you're uh, a business owner and you're looking at contracts that you hope to get this year and you haven't gotten those contracts. There are deals that you're hoping, hoping to make, etc. Um, 
but, and so you understand this idea that, that uh, you would kind of give at the end once you know what your income is going to be. But that's not what God commands from us, His people, even though it makes good sense in a way to operate that way. God says He wants our first fruits. He wants us to go out into, a, into the year and He wants us to think really hard about bringing in the first income that we know of in the coming year, not the last income, without necessarily even knowing what the size of the total income is going to be. And here's why. If you give simply out of your surplus, if we give to God financially simply out of our surplus, we will never really give in such a way that it cuts into our lifestyle. We'll still give, of course, but over the course of the year, we'll still be able to do what we want to do, buy what we want to buy, go where we want to go, have the kind of lifestyle that we want to have, and then out of that, once that's established, then we will give our, our leftovers, what, what, is, what, we are, what we think we can still give after all of those important things have been taken care of. But in the Bible, we are constantly being called to give actually sacrificially. In other words, we are called to give until it hurts. What do I mean by that? I mean we're called to give to the degree that it actually affects our lifestyle. That it actually has an impact on the way we live over the course of the entire year. And so today we're asking Grace Valley folk to take a pledge form or get it over the email or whatever and to search their hearts to think hard about their income, to wrestle with the question of, of their stewardship, of their money to God, etc., and what they can give, but not to do it simply out of our surplus. Look, if, if you only give out of your surplus and then hard times hit, what happens? You don't give because you don't have a surplus. But God calls us to give in lean times and in rich times, in bad times and in good times, because acclamation about Him. It's dependence on Him, obviously, because you're saying, look, God, you are the one who's going to make sure that I have what I need at the end of the day or at the end of the month or at the end of the year. But it's also an act of radical proclamation about God because what you are saying is, is that you do believe that everything belongs to Him ultimately and you do believe that, uh, that He will take care of you as a heavenly Father takes care of His children. Now, that's just the introduction. Ugh, hey? Like, that's just the intro to the sermon. But it's in a sense, it's actually the first point as well because the first point, even though we're not even in the text yet, that we need to know is this. The Bible calls us, biblical generosity calls us to be radical in our giving. Biblical generosity is radical generosity and it is sacrificial generosity. Now, we're talking about a topic as big as a mountain as I said, Jesus talks about money I don't know how many times in the New Testament, and we're trying to do it all in one sermon, so this may sound radically simplistic, but even though it's simplistic, it's still true, and hopefully it will still be thought-provoking and convicting to each of us, but also, Lord willing, really encouraging. We're going to look at this text together, 
And what we're going to see is we're going to see three things. We're going to see how money can actually be an obstacle to radical generosity. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. Money can be an obstacle to radical generosity. Why money can be an obstacle to radical generosity. And then finally, how we can overcome that obstacle and become radically generous. So those are the three things we're going to talk about today. We're going to also explore this further in our engage groups a little bit. Let's go to work together. Number one, first of all, how money, that money can be an obstacle to radical generosity. Well, I know that sounds funny, but but look at this, this, these paragraphs. Jesus says, do not store up yourself treasures in heaven, etc. That's paragraph one. Then in paragraph two, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body, da 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 And then paragraph three, he says, no one can serve two masters, and he's talking about money and God. So he goes from money to the eye and lamps and light to money. What's going on here? Well, that second paragraph is very, very important. In that second paragraph where Jesus is talking about the eye and about blindness and lamps and light and all that kind of stuff, Jesus is basically saying this. Look at us. Here we are in a a well-lit room, and we can navigate the room, and we can see things clearly. I can see that Keith is wearing a black sweatshirt this morning because I have access to that because my eyes are working. And so I, I can see clearly and understand reality as it actually is. But if your eyes don't work, if you can't see clearly, then it doesn't matter how well lit a room is, you don't have the proper access to reality to understand the way things really are and to see what you need to see. Your body, in a sense, your whole body is cut off from the truth, from the light, from the reality, because you're blind. So far, so good. You get it? Now, what on earth does this have to do with money? Well, here's what Jesus is saying. Money has a peculiar ability to blind us spiritually to just how important it is to us. Absolutely, to just how important it is to us. In Luke's version of this story, it's very interesting. Jesus says, watch out for all kinds of greed. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. You can find this in Luke chapter 12. Be alert, he's saying. Be ready. He's giving a warning. Keep your eyes peeled for the fact that greed, watch out, be on guard for all kinds of anger. He never says this about lying. He never says, watch out and be on guard about lying. He never says this about adultery. Watch out, be on guard for adultery. Why? Because when you are angry, when you lie, when you commit adultery, you know what you're doing. Nobody commits adultery and goes, well, wait a minute, you're not my wife. Right? That was funny. You are allowed to laugh at that. I know it's about adultery, but it is still funny. It's obvious and it's clear to us. But money blinds us, you see. You know, um, I've been a pastor for uh, almost 20 years now, and one of the things that people do, hopefully, is they come to you with their problems, with their sins, with their issues, and they confess them, and they ask, ask you to help them work through them. People have come to me to talk about lying. People have come to me to talk about anger. Oh, man. People have come to talk to me about bitterness. People have come to talk to me about adultery and sexual sin. Nobody, not once, has ever come to me and said, I have a problem with greed. Not once 
Nobody has ever come to me and said, you know what? I rely far too much on my money. I love money too much. Because money blinds us to its influence on our lives. In Luke chapter 18, there's this story of this rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know the Ten Commandments. Follow the Ten Commandments and you'll be saved. And the man says, well, I've kept the Ten Commandments since I was a kid. And Jesus is very harsh with him, even though it says in the story, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. So out of love, always Jesus, always, always, always acts out of love. Out of love, Jesus looks at him and he says, one thing you lack, go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. Boom! He just like up, like roundhouses this guy. Here's your problem. Go sell all your money, give it to, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. It says that the guy went away sad. Why? Because he was very wealthy. Jesus was harsh on this guy, hard with this guy, roundhoused this guy. Why? It's like, I know this is a really old reference, but some of you, you remember Moonstruck, the movie Moonstruck? And Cher, I forget who she hits, but she slaps the guy and goes, snap out of it. It's that. He's slapping this guy. Snap out of it. Do you know? Now, first application before we move to the second point, and it's this. You and I, we must, 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 must just assume, assume that we are in denial about money. Just assume that you think you are tied to money less than you really are. What I mean by that is this. Look, the amount of money we think we need to live on is probably more than what we really need to live on. Uh, I am currently listening to a fascinating podcast that I highly recommend to you. Thank you, Mark, for pointing it out to me. It's called The Happiness Lab. The Happiness Lab. It is hosted by a psychology professor from Yale University. I know this is bonus material, but it's really interesting. I think you'll like it. Uh, she's a psychology professor from Yale University who decided to teach a class because kids in Yale University were dealing with anxiety and depression, like it was off the charts. And so she, she dealt with a contentment and happiness class. Uh, uh, she started a class on happiness and contentment, and she thought maybe 30 kids would sign up for it. Her first class had 1,200 students in it. It became a thing to get into this class because happiness, contentment was so elusive. And anyhow, in one of the episodes on, in, uh, on the Happiness Lab, I was listening to it, and it's about money and how we think that money will make us you make, and what do you think you would need to make? If you, were th if you made $30,000 a year, you said, well, if I made $50,000 a year, then I'd be happy. Okay. What if you made $100,000 a year, double what the other person expected? You said, ah, if I made like around two hundred or $250,000 a year, then I'd really be happy. It did not matter what you made. Everybody said they need to make more. Even millionaires. You got $50 million? You know, yeah, but if I buy, you know, I can't buy this painting that I would really like. That would kind of really cut into my investments or to my retirement portfolio. The reality is, friends, that every one of us probably thinks we need more to live on than we actually do. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, um, the amount that we think we can give away is probably less than we can really give away. 
the amount that we think we can give away is probably less than we can really give away. Take the benchmark, for example. Um, 10%, people talk about 10%, you know, giving away 10, Christians talk about, people don't, Christians, you know, non-Christian world thinks that's crazy, but Christians try to talk about 10%, and the reason is it comes from the Old Testament tithe, and I'm not going to talk about whether the tithe is still applicable today or not. If anything, 10% is like your basement, so sorry guys, uh, but probably the theology of the Bible on giving says that 10% in the New Testament era is your basement. But let's just take 10%. People think that is crazy. That is unrealistic. 10% of my income or my resources or whatever I'm supposed to give away. But, but listen, imagine if a rich guy came to you, a really rich person came to you and said, listen, what I want you to do, I want you to take my, all my stuff. Here's my stuff. I'm going to give it to you. Here's my my." resources, I'm going to give it to you, and what I want you to do is I want you to invest it. And I only want a 10% return on it. The other 90% is yours. What would you think? It's the greatest deal in the history of the world. We've got some financial advisors in here. They're asking for that opportunity right now. But the reality is, is that everything is God's. Everything is God's. The easily say, what if you were born clinging to the side of a mountain in Mongolia? How successful would you be then? There are people in other parts of the world who work their fingers to the bone, the bone, and it's poof, taken away from them by oppressive regimes, or because they live in an impoverished village in uh, the middle of, of sub-Saharan Africa, it does not matter how hard they work, they will only ever be able to be incredibly blessed by being born where we are, by having access to the education we have access to, by being given the opportunities that we've been given. Well, it's all God's. And if he says, look, keep 90%, I only want 10, why aren't we saying, what a great deal? Because we are blind. We are blind to the power that money has over our lives. Money itself can be an obstacle to our radical generosity. Now, why is that? Why is money able to blind us so and, and, and make us, what's the word, um, less generous than, than we ought to be and are capable of being? Well, look at verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is telling us that money competes with God in our lives. That's why. Money competes with God in our lives. It, lit, it operates as an alternative God, what the Bible calls an idol. That's how it functions in our lives because what what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to look to God and God alone for certain things in our lives that he is our provider that he is our sustainer that he is the one who gives us our satisfaction and our security and our significance and our identity but we look to money on earth where moths and vermin or other translations say rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, literally what Jesus says there is, do not treasure earthly treasures, do not treasure, or, but treasure heavenly treasures. And what he means is, is that every single one of us, 
every has a heart that treasures something. The thing you treasure is the thing that you value most. It's the thing that, that you love most. It's the thing that's captivated your heart and your mind and your imagination. It's the thing in which you place your trust. It's the thing that you say, if I have this, then I will be okay. I, you know, it's a, I'm, I'm really into the Lord of the Rings again because uh, over Christmas break, my family, we watched all the Lord of the Rings movies together, um, which is a bit of a tradition of ours. And that's a long, hey, that's like really long. You're wondering, did you work over Christmas? No, I watched Lord of the Rings. Um, in Lord of the Rings, it's all about the ring, right? And people who come into possession of that ring, what do they call it? Precious. It's their precious. It's their thing that they can't live without. It's the thing that they have to have. It's the thing that if they have it, they can handle anything else as long as they have that. Even Denethor, I know I'm going beyond what some of you know about Lord of the Rings, but even Denethor, who was steward of Gondor, believed he never did get possession of the ring, but he believed that if he had possession of the ring, then he could defeat Sauron. It was his precious too. The thing that if we could get a hold of that, then we'd be okay. And sometimes money actually is that in our lives. It's the thing that, we, that if we have it, we'll be okay. But, but very often, actually, it's the means to the thing that we want. Because money makes that say that if you have it, you will be significant. You, with it, you will feel significant. This is, the, this is the lily example that Jesus talks about uh, just further down in our passage. You know, the lilies of the field who are clothed in splendor beyond even Solomon's. Some of us think that, that if we have money, then we can dress the way we want, we can drive the cars we want, we can have the houses we want. It gives us a sense of significance. And on a small scale, that happens to everybody. I have to admit, you know, I get a pair of new shoes. I got these awesome hush puppies. Nobody has said anything about them yet. I'm very frustrated by that, but I get these awesome hush puppies for a phenomenal deal, by the way, and I put them on, and I walk outside, and nobody cares but me that I've got these shoes on, but I feel like the man because we think that our significance is somehow tied to these external things that money can provide or security if I have money, then I'm safe. And this is a big one for a lot of people. If I have money, then I'm safe. It's the sparrow example that Jesus uses just a little further down. He says, look at the birds, look at the sparrows. Man, they're, they don't labor and spin, or oh, what does he say? They don't store up in barns, and yet your heavenly Father takes care of them. We think that if we can store up enough money, somehow, strangely enough, we honestly think that we can protect ourselves from the day of disaster. We think, well, then, you know, if I go bankrupt or something, I, I, I'll, I'll, well, you won't go bankrupt because I have money. I won't go bankrupt or something. I'm not very good with money myself, so. Um, but the reality, but, but think about it. What are real disasters? So your house burns down. Call Alcare. So your portfolio empties and your business falls apart. You'll get a job somewhere. So you lose your house. If you're willing to live somewhere else, you can find another place to live. But what happens if you get diagnosed with a terminal disease? Where's your money now? You get problems. 
how many people have actually been divided in their relationships by money? And what about death? Where's your money when death comes? It can't do anything for that stuff. Do you see, do you see though, how it serves as an idol, as an alternative God? Here's a bit of a test to find how it operates that way in your life. Admittedly, it, it, it takes effort sometimes to give your money away, doesn't it? It takes discipline. It's not always easy to do. You, you do it with a bit of fear and trepidation, perhaps. But, but it's effortless for you to spend money on other things. What are those things that it's effortless for you to spend money on? Those things, either they're an idol or they're a thing that gets you to an idol. Like some of us, it's very easy for us to spend money on food or, or sports or vacations or properties or whatever. I love soccer. I'm a little bit obsessed with soccer. And I've been, I don't have an answer for you this morning yet about why I love soccer. That's an ongoing battle in my own heart. But I have noticed that that's one of the ways I, I spend money pretty effort, effort. I've got kids that are into sports and into soccer, and it costs this much for, a, for them to be in this league. Cut the check. You need new shoes? Let's drive and go. Well, we'll try to find a sale, but, you know, we'll drop big bucks on a good pair of shoes. We'll go all over creation to games and practices and tournaments and blah, 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 and just keep cheap just keep paying for it. Why? Why is it so effortless? Well, I think perhaps somewhere deep down there's an identity issue going on there where I think that if I can walk around and say I have, a ch I have children that are athletic and in good at okay, I spent a few hours driving them to practice, but I'm not the one teaching them, and I'm not the one ultimately who gave them the skills. The point, though, is that, the, that where you spend your money effortlessly can be an a, a indicator of how money operates as an idol in your life. You know, what I'm trying to say here is that the problem is not that we're too stingy or too irresponsible with our money or we spend too much on sports or clothing or vacations or makeup or parties or eating out or whatever. The problem isn't that we should give more money away or that we work too hard. Really, the problem is idolatry. What we're worshiping in our hearts, where our treasure is. Money has the power to rule us and to shape us and to distort us. And the more money you have, actually, the more potential it has to do that in your life. That's why Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying it's impossible for rich people to get into heaven. The Bible's got a lot of rich Christians in it. So that can't be what he's saying. What he is saying, however, is that the problem that we all have to find our significance, to find our security, to find our identity in our wealth, that problem that we all have it's made worse by money. The more money you have, the greater the temptation to find those things in it. Because money does have power. It does. It has power to do great things. Think about it. If you have 10 bucks, 10% of 10 bucks is a dollar. How hard is it to give a dollar? 10%. What can you do with a dollar? Maybe you can get a coffee at McDonald's during one of their promotions. But that's about it. 
If you have $100, 10 bucks, now maybe you can get a meal. If you have $1,000, 100 bucks, well, now maybe you and uh, someone else can go out for a half decent. Now you have $100,000, well, to give $10,000 away. Well, what could you do with $10,000? What if you had a million bucks and you, you're, you're being called to give $100,000 away? Some of us are reeling at, the, at even the potential of having $100,000 to give away. Who would give that away? Because it has power, you see. And we can be seduced by the power the more we have. Jesus is not saying, those of you who have been financially successful, shame on you. He's just saying, watch out. And you got to really watch out. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that to us. Don't forget. Some of you might be listening to this and thinking, well, yeah, that's good for that person and that person and that person. But I'm a poor student. You are a Western student and you probably have a savings account. That puts you like in the top 5% of the world's earners just by virtue of that. Keep your perspective global. Don't keep it too local. We are the wealthy right here, right now by virtue of where we live and the fact that we have bank accounts. Anyhow, last point, third point. How do we break out? and become radically generous so that people will be dumbfounded. Not just, not just like, oh, Christians are pretty generous people. people. But people will be gobsmacked and say, my goodness, what are you doing? That's almost, that's irresponsible. That kind of radical generosity. Well, Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven. Now, this is a incredibly profound statement. It deserves a sermon on its own, but we're just going to try to summarize it in four very quick expositions. First of all, we have to see that all the majesty, all the glory of existing at the Father's right hand in eternity. And the scriptures say that he laid all of that aside and he didn't just become middle class. He became poor. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. He impoverished himself. Why? Because he treasured up things in heaven. He gave up everything, and he was willing to pay anything. Why? For you and for me, when he died on the cross, to get us, to make us his own. He was destitute because he treasured you and me. He built up treasures in heaven. He wanted to save your eternal soul and my eternal soul so that when we die, we will experience paradise with him and that at the end of the age, we will experience glory and majesty for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth as brand new physical followers of Jesus Christ in the, the glorious, eternal, blessed realm that, pro that is promised us in the scriptures. Every other God, every other treasure will demand that you die for it, that you do whatever it takes, that you make any sacrifice for it. Jesus is the only treasure who died for you. So you've got to make him, which is that we have a spiritual inheritance that moth and rust or moth and vermin simply cannot destroy 
If you believe that, you will become radically generous with your earthly inheritance. All my wealth is in the cross. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that, that, do you believe the gospel? Do you really believe that when you die, you will enter paradise with him and that at the end of history, you will be in your resurrected body placed in the new heavens and the new earth where you will want for absolutely nothing? That that the riches of Bill Gates in the here and now is, is not even worth comparing to the majesty and the glory and the wealth that you will have in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Do you really believe that? The reason I am walking down the aisle right now and going like this is because I have been freaking out all week about whether or not I really believe that. How in the world can we be stingy with the 20 bucks we have now when we are promised billions upon billions upon billions in our eternal bank account? We're going to live 80 years, maybe, maybe 90 in the here and now. It is a poof and it is gone. And we are sitting on RRSPs and, and investments and uh, and and all this other stuff. We are sitting on all this stuff and we won't give it up when we have been promised that there is so much more in store for us in eternity. What is wrong with me? The only answer I can give to that is I don't really believe it. Give me an alternative answer. I'm dying to hear one because it's freaking me out that I can be a minister in a church and discover that maybe my problem in all of this really just boils down to faith. And maybe your problem in this does too. Do we really believe it? Like, if you, if you think about it logically, I'm just asking us to work out the logic. Think about it logically. What is the gospel promise? Jesus says in Revelation that you will receive the evening star. Bill Gates doesn't own a star. I don't even know what that means, I'll be honest. I don't know what it means that we will receive the evening star, but I know Bill Gates and that other really good rich guy, the Berkshire Hathaway guy that we always talk about, uh, who's Buffett, Warren Buffett, these dudes do not own stars. Fabulously wealthy. You and I, we are fabulously wealthy already because of the inheritance we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not telling every one of us that what we should do is sell our homes and, you know, you've got 11 kids, but you should live in a two-bedroom apartment and suffer, you know, because you have this inheritance. I'm just saying, radical generosity is beyond what we, probably what we are already giving. And the, the power of, of having that radical generosity is remembering our inheritance. Third thing, uh, You'll follow the leader. Um, Jesus invested in heavenly, eternal treasures. You will too. Our houses, our RRSPs, our whatever, all our earthly treasures, they will not last. People last. The word of God lasts forever. That's what the book of Isaiah says. When we bring people into connection with God's word so that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you not realize we are making friendships that will last forever?
when you start to see that, the first thought you'll think about with your money is, how do I advance the kingdom of God? How can I use this to advance the kingdom of God? Because that's an investment that lasts forever. Even if we want to take a strangely selfish perspective on all of this and say, well, I want good return on my money. How's an eternal return sound to you? How does a dividend that's not going to pay for the next 50 years, but that's going to pay for the next 50 billion years sound to you? Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then you add to it, and then you add to it again, and you are thoughtful about it. You are disciplined about it. Radical generosity means that we are intentional, that we are disciplined, and that we are determined, okay? It doesn't just kind of happen. It means thinking about it. It means having a strategy. It means having a plan. It means looking at your income statement. Some of us don't even have a budget or anything. We don't know what comes in, what comes out. We just hope that there's enough in the bank at the end of the month to pay the bills. You sit down and you actually think it through. So go home. Figure out what your giving is. If it's not 10%, figure out how you can work towards that this year. And figure out the sacrifices that you are going to make to get there. And then decide how you're going to hold yourself accountable. Maybe through your engaged group. Maybe through a very close friend. Maybe through a family member. But don't just do it through your, your, your budgeting app. Although that's a good, a good way to start. Do it through something meaningful. Something with a bit of teeth frankly. Okay, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, make us people of faith. Make us people of faith, oh God. Please, people of faith who are so full of the vision of the wealth we have in Jesus Christ and so overwhelmed by that wealth that we, we cannot help but re- be radically generous with our own Father, there's guilt in this room. I'm feeling it. Others are feeling it. Some may say, well, I think he was unfair with me. If I was unfair in any way, Father, I ask that you would allow people to forgive that. Love covers over a multitude of sins, Peter says. But Father, if there is legit guilt that we are feeling, may we not run from that. May we run to you with it and repent of it and find your grace afresh and anew so that we can... Um, have renewed determination and commitment to being radically generous as Jesus was. Not because we're getting salvation from it, but because we've already received salvation in, in staggeringly rich measures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.